0: Welcome back to Unprecedential. This is Adam White. Today's episode is a little different than the ones we've done in the past. It's in two parts. The subject is the House of Representatives recent resolution enabling members of Congress to vote by proxy and the federal lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that rule. Now to discuss all of this, we're going to be joined first by two lawyers leading that lawsuit, Chuck Cooper and Joelle Alisea, law firm of Cooper & Kirk, who are representing members of Congress and other affected individuals. And then in the second part of this conversation, we'll be joined by three scholars of Congress, Kevin Kosar and James Walner of the R Street Institute, and Michael Stern of Point of Order. In these conversations will walk through the constitutional and procedural and broader policy questions raised by this rule against the backdrop of history, because whatever one thinks of this, It's truly unprecedented, and it raises fascinating questions. We're going to begin with our conversation with Chuck Cooper and Joel Alisea. On May 15th, the House of Representatives passed Resolution 965, authorizing members to vote and build a quorum by proxy. On May 26th, members of the House, led by Congressman Kevin McCarthy, filed a federal lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that resolution. As they say in their lawsuit, quote, sometimes the most telling indication of a severe constitutional problem is the lack of historical precedent for Congress's action. That was a quote from Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the NFIB versus Sebelius case. The plaintiffs added, this is one of those times. There's a good reason that no Congress has ever done what the House has now purported to do in H.R.S. 965. It is flatly prohibited by the Constitution. Now to discuss this lawsuit and the constitutional issues it raises, we're very lucky to be joined by two of the lead lawyers in the case. Chuck Cooper is a founding member and chairman of the firm of Cooper & Kirk, one of the leading Supreme Court law firms in Washington, D.C. and the country. Chuck has an unparalleled career in constitutional law and government in Washington, D.C. He served in the Justice Department under President Reagan, leading the Office of Legal Counsel. He clerked for Justice, later Chief Justice, William Rehnquist. And since his time in government, he's been at the forefront of constitutional litigation for more than two decades. And he's joined in the lawsuit and on this show by his associate, Joel Alisea. Joel clerked for Justice Alito and Judge O'Scanlan of the Ninth Circuit. He graduated with honors from Harvard Law School, where he led the Federalist Society. And he too has been a leading figure in recent years on constitutional debate writing articles for national affairs and, and other publications. Chuck, Joel, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks very much for inviting us to discuss this very important case. I very much appreciate your kind words of introduction.
0: No, it's my pleasure. Let's jump right to the crux of the constitutional argument. You write, quoting a report from the Congressional Research Service, that the text of the Constitution itself envisions members of Congress meeting in person and voting in person. Not through proxies or remotely. Could you describe for us what the House has done and why it's unconstitutional?
1: Sure. The House has, again, as you mentioned in your introduction, for the first time in 231 years of American history since the first Congress, it has authorized one member of Congress to vote through a proxy, giving a proxy to another member of Congress, and not to actually attend the session of Congress physically, both to be counted towards establishing a quorum, which is constitutionally required before the House may do its business, as the the Constitution puts it, or to vote, to cast a recorded vote from the floor of the Congress is the first time it's ever happened. And it's, I guess, not a surprise to us anyway, that it's never happened before because the words of the Constitution are so pellucidly clear, that the framers of the Constitution, both unamended and in several amendments, clearly contemplated that Congress would be what? A deliberative body, a deliberative body in a republic. You know, that that wonderful story that every school child is taught, I hope still, certainly in my day, about the woman who asked Benjamin Franklin after the Constitutional Convention, what what kind of government have you given us, Dr. Frank? And she respond he he responded, excuse me, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Well what was a republic? It was a form of government in which the people in distant places within this vast new american country would elect representatives through which they would speak in congress and in that deliberative body and they would speak through that particular individual who who was close to to his or her constituents this uh, redefines what it means to be a deliberative body in our in our view where Members of Congress, the electorates, chosen representatives, come to debate one another face to face in in an effort to find agreement or consensus on those policies that are in the best interest of the country as a whole. This redefines it by allowing as few as 22 members of Congress, because each one under this rule is allowed to cast up to 11 votes his own, and 10 proxy votes. As few as 22 members of Congress can convene and a quorum be declared, establish law for the nation.
0: Now, we're recording this by Zoom. A lot of business is being conducted in this country these days remotely. The House didn't pass this resolution sort of by coincidence, right? They, they passed it in the aftermath of, of the COVID-19 outbreak. But the crux of your complaint is that while we have the liberty to, to do our work tele remotely, Congress has to abide by the rules set forth in the Constitution. And so you walk through some of the specific textual provisions that point directly to place or presence or meeting face to face. What are the sort of the best examples of, of that? Joelle, Chuck?
2: On the textual provisions, is that specifically your question,
0: Adam? Yeah, that's right. What you yeah. in the complaint you go give many, many examples of phrases in both Article One and Article Two of the Constitution where it involves, say, the Senate.
1: Let me jump in and I'll, I'll give you just two that seem dispositive to me. And but keep in mind, Adam, there 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 is one provision after another. There's at least a dozen or fifteen provisions that are. Equally clear in their contemplation that Congress meets, shall meet, and assemble in person. But here's Article One, Section Four, Clause Two, right at the front end of the Constitution: The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meeting shall. And then it goes on. Here's an, here's to my mind one of the most another one, and it, it it's it's the most dispositive or among them. Article 1, Section 5, Clause 1, it states this, each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. But a smaller number may adjourn from day to day and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members blah, blah, blah. So if, if there isn't a quorum, if a quorum d- doesn't show up, a smaller number than a majority can actually take action to compel the absent members to come to the seat of government and to assemble and to deliberate exactly what what, what is contemplated in a republic and in a democratic society. Well,
0: that's, a, that's a good example. Uh, Joel, others?
2: I think the quorum clause that Chuck cites really is Crystal clear, but as he said, there are many other provisions of the Constitution that reinforce the necessity of actual presence by members of Congress. And another one, for example, would be what we say is the, the yeas and nays requirements, how we describe it in our paper. But that's in Article 1, Section 5, Clause 3, which says each House shall keep a journal of its proceedings and from time to time publish the same. Accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the members of either house, on any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. The key language there is, of those present. And it just doesn't make any sense to construe that provision as requiring those who are going to require a recorded vote to be actually present in the house in order to put forward a recorded vote. But those who will actually vote be allowed to cast their votes remotely, to do so from the comfort of their home office scanner sending in their vote to the clerk of the house. That, doesn't, that just does not comport with the language of that provision. Really, I think this gets to a larger issue, which is the way in which proxy voting creates systemic anomalies throughout the constitutional structure. That once you move toward proxy voting, a lot of provisions of the constitution just don't make much sense. Provisions become superfluous, like the compelling absent members passage that Chuck was emphasizing earlier, completely superfluous if proxy voting is permissible. But other provisions just only makes sense if actual presence is required.
0: Now, I have to admit, when, when crisis first struck or when COVID first struck, my initial instinct, and I, and I co-wrote a, an article with a colleague of mine at AEI, you've all been, where we, we really urged Congress to get involved and said Congress should find ways to do work remotely, both committee work and, and and voting. I have to admit, I hadn't walked through the specific provisions of the Constitution at the level of granular detail that the lawsuit does. And I think one of the parts of this lawsuit that really deserves attention is the fact that even words that we might think of in a different way today, like quorum or assemble or meet, right? Again, we're doing this by Zoom. We're used now to meeting in person. But your complaint traces these words back to the way they were understood at the time they were written. You quote dictionaries by uh, Webster and, and Johnson and, and so on. And those definitions, even for for what might be today more ambiguous terms, you say, at the time, had a much clearer meaning. They meant face-to-face discussions. Chuck, did I cut you off a moment ago? I think you were about to say something.
1: No, no, not at all. I I think it was at the the risk of belaboring the (laughs) clarity of the language and the contemplation of the the Constitution. I was going to share one more provision with you, which seems, again, dispositive. And it's Article 1, Section 6, Clause one, which is you know the speech and debate immunity, the senators and representatives shall be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. That provision simply makes no sense if. The member of Congress is going to and from his or her mailbox to post the proxy to another member of Congress. It only makes sense, obviously, you know, if, if the members of Congress are attending the assembly at the seat of government.
0: Now, a little while ago, you quoted from Article 1, Section 5, and there's another clause in there I wanted to ask you about. Clause 2 says, each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, and then it goes on to say, punish its members for disorderly behavior and so on. Does that provision give Congress any leeway to work with these sorts of tools that are, or, or rules that though they might not have, have been available at the time of the founding now are available? I guess what I'm asking is, does that clause allowing each house to determine the rules of its proceedings, leave a little play in the joints for Congress to adapt its procedures to to the current circumstances?
1: I would say this, Adam, that the rulemaking authority of each house of Congress is very broad. No question about that. But it does have constitutional limits. An example we use in our complaint, which was actually provided to us, poignantly by one of our clients, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who said, would anybody doubt that if Congress passed a rule, if the House passed a rule, that only male members are allowed to vote from the floor of the House, that that rule would be invalid? That's that's obviously an extreme example, but it puts the point that there, there are... Limits on Congress's rulemaking authority, broad though it is, and there's a case that's uh, quite helpful, I think, and supportive of this proposition, is the Balin case. And Joel's closely familiar with it. Now, if I may, kick it to Joel for a, for a description of what that case did. Sure. And and the Balin
2: case was a case about a a House rule. It was a House rule that was established to govern what counts as a quorum within the House. And the House had passed a rule saying that those who are present in the chamber of the House will be counted toward the quorum, even if they don't vote. And previously, the practice had been only those who were voting on legislation would be counted toward the quorum. So you had a lot of people, a lot of members who would just hang back and not vote, even though they were there in, in the chamber of the House. House changed the rule to those members who were present but not voting. And this was challenged, the, the, whether a whether quorum was present was challenged with respect to a bill that was eventually enacted. And the Supreme Court, while acknowledging the broad authority that the House has under the rulemaking powers that you just described, Adam, while acknowledging the breadth of that authority. Went out of its way to, to make it clear that the House's authority to either House's authority to make its own rules is limited by other provisions of the Constitution, which it may not violate, and of course by the affirmative rights of individuals and members, which it also may not violate. In this instance, the, the House rule in Balin did not violate any separate provision of the, of the Constitution and therefore the, the House rule was valid and the form was was present in that case. Our point is, this case is like Balin in the sense it's a challenge to a House rule. But unlike Balin, we have a House rule that is ex- explicitly barred by other provisions of the Constitution.
0: There's a lot of history in this complaint, not just the case that you cited, but you detail other moments in, in history, in American history, where Congress was confronted with challenging circumstances. COVID nineteen is new, but it's not the first pandemic the country has faced, and it's not the first crisis that's come to Washington D.C. Could you give a couple of examples of those, and just sort of describe, real, real generally, how Congress coped with some of those earlier emergencies that you describe in the in the complaint?
1: Adam, sure, I'll take a take a shot at that. Initially, here, as you point out, there have been many many crises that have faced the country, and in particular have faced the nation's capital specifically, and have faced Congress as impediments or threats, very dangerous threats, to a Congress meeting in person in the nation's capital. And yet there has never been a suggestion that we've ever been able to find that an individual congressman could vote even despite the fact that that congressman was not in attendance. And to my mind, the most dispositive historical example, all of which s- simply go to confirm the language of the Constitution, but the most dispositive one comes from the very, from the third Congress. While Washington was the president, while Madison, the f- father of our Constitution, was a member of Congress, while Jefferson was the secretary of state, and while Hamilton was the secretary of the Treasury. And Washington, in 1793, during the yellow fever epidemic, and by the way, to set the stage, Philadelphia was the seat of government at the time. This was before the government had moved to Washington, D.C. Philadelphia was the seat. The yellow fever had devastated Philadelphia. It had wiped out almost 10% of that city's population, 10%. Think of that. So the, the, the danger of yellow fever was orders of magnitude greater than the dangers that we face today, despite how extraordinary those, those dangers are and how serious we have to take them. So it was orders of magnitude worse. Washington, the president, solicited the advice of those three major founders in terms of what the Constitution means does it empower the president to assemble the, the Congress, the members of Congress at a place different from the seat of government, at a place different? All three of them had a unified opinion separately offered to, to Washington that no, it does not. There's no such power in the president. As Jefferson put it, even if they come to Philadelphia for one day to meet in the field, and adjourn to another place, they must come to Philadelphia initially. And no one suggested that they could avoid assembly altogether by mailing in their votes or offering proxies, giving proxies to other members to, you know, minimize the threat. You know, we've heard a lot about technology and the fact that, yes, we have technology now that we're using right now to meet I guess, in in a sense of that word, virtually. But it's always been possible to give a proxy to another member of Congress. Even in those days, it was never suggested. We think that is a very nearly dispositive historical reference. But there are many, many others, as Joel may add. And I, I think that another
2: relevant historical data point here is, of course, the 1918 pandemic. And, that, and during that pandemic, which was far worse than the pandemic that we are facing now in terms of the, the amount of death that occasioned it, and that's not in any way to minimize, of course, the, the pandemic and crisis we face today. It's simply to say that that pandemic was, in terms of its death toll, far worse. Congress nonetheless continued to meet in person. Congress nonetheless found ways to do the people's business in compliance with the Constitution's requirement that it assemble and conduct that business in person. And so the notion that the current pandemic is somehow a novel circumstance or something that our country has not had to deal with in the past is simply not true. And I I would also just point out that, of course, the Senate right now is still meeting in person. They have not authorized proxy voting. So their judgment seems to also be it is possible to continue to meet in person as the Constitution requires.
0: Now, they say the past is a distant country, or past is a foreign country. I suppose when we compare current circumstances to some of those old crises, it's easy to say, well, they didn't have the technology we have, they didn't have ease of, 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 you know, phones and computers. But the most recent example you cite in your complaint is the attacks of September 11, 2001. Where Congress itself, it seemed at the time and afterwards, had been targeted specifically for a a possible plane crash. People in Washington had no idea what was going on, which building might be hit by an airplane next, right? People had to evacuate the Capitol. But you said even then, Congress did not move to to proxy voting in the days or or weeks following that emergency.
1: Well, that's right. That's right. And that's a modern example. I mean, we have examples of both pandemics that are at least as bad, if not orders of magnitude worse than the one we're suffering under now, but we, we, also have, we also have wars that were being conducted and waged right outside of Congress's windows, effectively. In the War of 1812, when the Capitol building itself was burned, and every other public building in Washington, D.C. was reduced to ruins by, by the British. Congress met in Washington, D.C. in a hotel for three different congressional terms. But you you mentioned 9-11, a modern example, and one that all of us on this call, I'm sure, you know, are old enough to remember very, very vividly. I don't recall there being any discussion about the possibility of Congress meeting remotely somehow through some technological means or through proxy voting. And there was a lot of talk about continuity of Congress, continuity of government, and and the kind of measures that every Congress contemplates as, you know, where the seat of government will be moved on emergency basis, on a temporary and emergency basis. Recently, fairly recently, a few years ago, it came to public life that the Greenbrier Hotel in West Virginia had full bunkered facilities, and that was going to be the place for Congress to meet in, the, in, a, in a situation where it was impossible, impossible to meet in Washington, D.C. So Congress has always contemplated the type of exigencies. That could force it to assemble at a temporary and emergency seat of government. But Congress has never contemplated that it would assemble from its own recliners in its own home, in each home of every member.
2: And I just want to add to that, if I may, Adam, that you led into the 9 11 example by discuss- discussing how it's a modern example compared to the past and that there are technological changes that have occurred. But I think it's important to emphasize that we're not talking about Congress being by Zoom. Proxy voting is something that could have been done at the founding and in fact was done in at least one colonial assembly, right? So this, this is not something that's the result of some modern technology. It was a method of voting that could have been done at the founding, certainly during the 1793 epidemic, and was not done. And that silence, I think, speaks very loudly.
0: That's a good point. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of a lawsuit like this. Many times members of Congress file a federal lawsuit against the executive branch especially, but I suppose we'll see now in circumstances like this there's always questions about standing, why members of Congress have standing, what their injury is. Is it an institutional injury? Is it a personal injury? What is the injury that gives rise to the ability of these particular people to invoke the power of a federal court? So how do your plaintiffs have standing here?
1: Joel is the justiciability guru in our firm. And so I'm going to kick that over to him. Well, I think that the first thing
2: to to notice about how to to answer that question, Adam, is that, of course, we have both members of Congress who are plaintiffs and constituents who are plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Both of them have standing under what we're saying is a vote dilution theory, that the members of Congress, their votes are diluted through proxy voting because Congressman Raskin, for example, is casting multiple votes on behalf of his district Whereas Congressman Chip Roy, for example, is casting one vote on behalf of his district. So his vote is diluted in comparison with those who are acting as proxies. And by the same token, the constituents of those members of Congress have their votes diluted, their voting power diluted, because their congressman's voting power is diluted. Now, one thing I think is very important to acknowledge here is that both of those theories of standing both of those types of injuries both as to the congressman and as to the constituents have been expressly acknowledged in the dc circuit in a case called michael as being cognizable injuries giving rise to article 3 standing. and that was in the michael case is very analogous to this case it was a challenge to a house rule that gave voting power to territorial delegates in the Committee of the Whole. So again, very similar. Challenge to a House rule, vote dilution as the type of injury, both as to the members of Congress and as to the constituents. D.C. Circuit squarely held there was standing in that case. So we think that under Michael and under the general principles of Article Three standing and vote dilution, it's quite clear that they're standing for all plaintiffs in this case.
0: So maybe we'll end on this. One of the themes throughout this case and throughout much of the discussion um, that we've had just now is, is that the Constitution, by its express terms, treats Congress differently than the other parts of government with respect to the requirements that Congress meet in person. As you point out in, in the complaint, Article III's provisions for the Supreme Court and other courts, it's not defined in these same terms. In fact, we've seen co- the Supreme Court hear oral arguments by teleconference the last few weeks. The president can be president from anywhere. He can sign or veto a bill in the Oval Office or in Air Force One or somewhere abroad. But Congress, for the reasons that you laid out, its work and its, its limits are defined in different terms. But thinking through that, I wonder, isn't there a risk then that, that if your lawsuit's correct and, and if you prevail, it will have the risk of disabling Congress? in future emergencies? Say, you know, even more dramatic circumstances, like a a dirty bomb goes off in downtown Washington, D.C., and it scatters everybody. Isn't this theory one that would really concentrate power in times of crisis in the hands of the president and and disable Congress?
1: I don't think that is a new risk, a risk that isn't baked into, if you will, separation of powers that our founders provided to protect our liberties. The framers themselves recognized that there must be energy and and independence in the executive because, because no deliberative body could respond with the kind of immediacy to urgent situations. That's why the president is commander in chief. If the dangers that face the nation are from without, from enemies, I also think that Congress, again, I I come back to one of the points I made initially, which is that it was designed by the framers of the Constitution as a deliberative body in a democratic society formed as a republic, one in which the people themselves were heard through the voices of those they elected from the distant parts of this country to express their views in the nation's Capitol and, and in that law lawmaking legislature. Yes, there are going to be times where that assembly cannot take place, at least at the seat of government. It may have to move to a hotel somewhere else in Washington, D.C., as it did in the War of 1812. It may have to move to the Greenbrier, whatever the new top-secret location is, for Congress to reconvene in an emergency like your describing but Congress will go on and uh, the Constitution we believe and we're earnestly advocating to the courts the Constitution requires that it go on the way it was established and the way it has for 231 years and that is through actual assembly of the members I'll just add to that a
2: couple of points uh, insofar as the concern raised by your question is that it would be hard for Congress to meet somewhere other than the seat of government. Congress may and in fact has provided for its assembly outside the seat of government where circumstances require it. And, and I think tellingly, that statute, which is currently in the U.S. Code to USC Section 27, was enacted by the Third Congress in the immediate aftermath of the 1793 pandemic epidemic, rather. So the, the third Congress, based with the scenario they confronted that they could not assemble at the seat of government because of the contagion, provided for that contingency in the future and did not limit that contingency to contagious disease, but to other circumstances as well. And the, the thing I would make is if your concern is instead, well, wouldn't the present just have immediate institutional advantage during a crisis? In addition to the points that Chuck made, I would also add that we point out in our brief and in our that President Lincoln, at the outbreak of the Civil War, did convene Congress almost immediately, even though he had to take some immediate, decisive, and truly extraordinary actions at the outbreak of the Civil War, such as suspending the writ of habeas corpus. And yet he almost immediately convened Congress. Now, why is that? It's because there are because our constitution is not just a bunch of rules, but it is situated within a political and societal context. And the president needs Congress during a crisis, because only Congress can provide the president with certain authorities. And that gives a political and institutional incentive for, for the president to rely on Congress in, in those types of situations. So I, I I think that there are there are reasons, practical and other institutional reasons, why that concern that you're raising is unlikely to obtain.
0: Now, as I said a little while ago, when COVID-19 first struck, you know, I, I immediately thought, well, Congress needs to do its work remotely. I have to say, the issues you've raised in your complaint and the research that you cite in the complaint has really made me go back and rethink a lot of that and challenge a lot of my initial assumptions. And so... Um I appreciate the the research you've done and I and I also appreciate you taking the time to discuss the lawsuit with us here on the podcast. If I may ask, what are the next steps in the lawsuit? We're recording this on June 4th, Thursday, June 4th. So our audience want to hear it for a few days, but as of as of the time we're taping this, where does the case stand procedurally?
1: We have filed not only the complaint, we've we've also filed an amended complaint. <laughs> literally within 48 hours of our initial complaint, because our initial complaint was filed before a proxy vote had actually been cast. We filed our amended complaint immediately thereafter, adding a number of new plaintiffs, particularly new members of Congress who added their names to the complaint, but more importantly, a new constituent plaintiff from a district in Florida where the member of Congress had voted through proxy. And that constituent plaintiff has advanced a separate new claim to the effect that the authority to vote in Congress, that the constituents of the member who gave his proxy delegated to that member is not itself delegable by that member to another member through proxy. So we now have both the dilution argument and this, what I would call the non-delegation argument in this different non-delegation context than we're familiar with. And we have filed as well at the same time a motion for a preliminary and permanent injunction. And so the next shoe to drop, if you will, in the litigation will be for the House, represented by its general counsel, Doug Lutter, to put in their opposition to our motion papers for preliminary injunction. And that's due, and I think Joel will have to fill in the blank, but it's it's due quite soon, two or three weeks now. That's right. On, on June 19th, their response is due.
0: Well, we'll look forward to further developments in the case. But in the meantime, Chuck, Joel, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much, Adam, for having us. We appreciate it very much.
0: For the second part of this discussion, I'm going to three people who know a lot about Congress, how it operates, how it ought to operate. Kevin Kosar is Vice President of the R Street Institute, where he directs its Governance Department and co-directs the Nonpartisan Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group. He established legbranch.org, a website for information and scholarship on congressional reform, and before joining Our Street, he was an analyst at the Congressional Research Service. Michael Stern is a lawyer specializing in issues related to Congress, including congressional ethics, elections, investigations, and lobbying. He previously served in both houses of Congress. In the House, he was senior counsel and also senior counsel to the House's Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And in the Senate, he served as Deputy Staff Director for the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. You can read him at pointoforder.com. And James Wallner is also a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute, writing on Congress, especially the Senate, the separation of powers, legislative procedure, and the federal policymaking process. He's also a lecturer in the American University's Department of Governance and a fellow at AU's Center of Congressional and Presidential Studies. He previously served as executive director of the Senate Steering Committee, and he was legislative director to Senators Pat Toomey and Jeff Sessions. You can read him at legislativeprocedure.com. Gentlemen, thanks all for joining us. Thanks for having us. In the first segment of this discussion with Chuck Cooper and Joelle Aliseo, we talked a lot about the constitutional issues and the lawsuit, of course. Why don't we pan back and begin with just a discussion of the resolution itself in case we breeze past some of these issues in the first part. James, can you give just a general description of HRES 965, what it is and how long it's in effect?
3: Sure, the the House approved the resolution uh, HRes 965 on May 15th. It authorizes proxy voting in limited circumstances. And among its provisions, the resolution empowers the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi or her designee to announce a covered period in which proxy voting is allowed in both committees and on the House floor. And that period can last for up to 45 days, but Pelosi or her designee may extend it for an additional 45 days if they so choose. And what's important about the resolution is that it details a special process that both absent members and those who are physically present must follow for members to vote by proxy. Absent members have to first send the House clerk a letter, signed letter, either electronically or physically, that specifies which of their colleagues they are going to authorize to vote on their behalf. And that letter must also include specific instructions from the absent member to their physically present colleague detailing how to vote their proxy. HRES 965 stipulates that the clerk must notify the member named as a proxy in the letter upon its receipt that, hey, you're going to be casting a vote for your colleague in case you didn't know. And it directs the clerk to inform the party leaders, interestingly, about the nature of that proxy, who's being designated to vote it, and what the vote actually will be prior to its being cast. So that's a really big benefit to party leaders, I think. The resolution limits to 10 the total number of proxies that a physically present member can cast at one time. And members who are physically present are required to announce the proxies before voting them. And what's really interesting here is that in a departure from its both its previous experience with proxy voting in committees, which happened up until, say, the 104th Congress in the 1990s, the House resolution stipulates explicitly that absent members requesting to vote by proxy are to be counted along with those who are physically present to determine the presence of a quorum under the House rules and under the Constitution. And without getting into too much detail, the resolution also directs the Committee on Administration to study uh, the available technology for implementing remote voting as opposed to proxy voting in the future if it's uh, available and secure to do so.
0: Well, that's great. Thanks. I wish I could parachute you back into the conversation we had in the first part. That covers everything. Kevin, do you have any thoughts on, on how this came about, sort of the debate leading up to the resolution? Because I have to admit, I, I keep an eye on things fairly closely. And I knew that in general, there was a, a, a question out there about about Congress working remotely. In fact, our friend Yuval Levin and I wrote a piece sort of encouraging Congress to do more work re- remotely. And then suddenly this, th- there was this, fr- this resolution. Where did it come from?
4: Well, proxy voting was discussed very quickly because it's something that has been done previously in committees, and that's the tendency. You reach towards a tool that you already know. But it was thrown in a stew with kind of other ideas about some sort of, you know, remote Congress, plus other members saying that, you know, look, just because there's coronavirus doesn't mean we can't be physically present. And early on, both Democrats and the Republicans were kind of hesitant to say, let's abandon the Capitol because we're afraid. They wanted to put on a proud face and each party had a little bit of competition with one another to be that proud face. But eventually, as the coronavirus situation got worse, the talks really heated up about how they could rig up something to enable them to operate. Unfortunately, something went wrong early on because the talks very early quick being bipartisan, and this very much became a House Majority Democrat. Position to go the proxy voting route, and this is where we find ourselves today with a, a lawsuit on our hands.
0: Michael, you served in Congress on September 11, 2001, both years before and and years beyond that, and there were discussions about continuity of government. Then, of course, in the aftermath of that attack, how should we think of of this new resolution with respect to the discussions that were happening years ago?
5: Right. Well. So after 9-11, the primary concern, of course, was something that would be like a terrorist attack that might kill a large number of members or leave them incapacitated. And that was the primary focus of concerns on the House side. And there were a number of efforts to come up with proposals that would address the need to replace members if, if something like that happened. However, there was some discussion and actually a very interesting hearing in 2002 that addressed specifically the idea that there could be a e-government as one of the options that might be used in the event either of a terrorist incident where members were unable to return to D.C. or a smallpox attack they were talking about, so things more like what we're facing today. although somewhat still more extreme. And there was an interesting hearing where a number of witnesses testified, and pretty much everyone agreed that at very least, there was a lot of constitutional doubt about the permissibility of doing something like that. I guess the most outspoken witness was uh, Don Wolfensberger, who was the former staff director of the House Rules Committee, who said that if you enabled something like this, would be like a reverse field of dreams. If you build it, they will no longer come. And essentially, that if you make it possible to do remote voting like this, then you will undermine the basic idea of commerce as a collection of people deliberate.
0: Well, that's a point that came up in in my conversation with the lawyers earlier. Actually, just a little bit at the end, and maybe we'll return to it here. But you know, there's both sort of the technical legal debate about this, these resolutions. But of course, that's all sort. Of, it is informed, and it ought to be informed by just our general sense of what it is that Congress exists to do. Right? How institutionally it ought to go about its work, because the ways it go about it goes about it, its work ultimately inform the the work that it it produces. Now, now, Michael, you, you spoke in terms of constitutional doubts. With that, let's turn back to James. James has written a series of, of pieces, primarily, again, at legislativeprocedure.com, where he's made very, very strong arguments against the constitutionality of this resolution. And at the same time, he's offered writings on how Congress might go about its work in other ways. Now, as I suggested on the first segment of the podcast, when this issue first arose, I was very, very sympathetic to the resolution and the idea of Congress doing its work remotely. And I, as I said, I'd written about it just a little bit earlier. When I first heard about the, the, the constitutional lawsuit, I was at first blush skeptical of it. I didn't think of the Constitution speaking very clearly in terms requiring physical presence. But it was James's blog posts, and then really thinking through the lawsuit, that's gotten me to think much, much more about this. So James, why don't you summarize the main constitutional argument that you have against this resolution?
3: Sure. there, there are arguments for and against the House changing how it conducts its business and potentially doing things virtually in moments of crises, and I think those are important arguments that we need to that we need to have and we need to explore. But what's interesting to me is that that doesn't necessarily negate the constitutional aspects of it, and the Constitution is the Constitution, and we ought to abide by it. and as I said before, the resolution allows a quorum uh, members who aren't present for the first time in the House's history to be counted uh, for purposes of constituting a quorum under both the House rules and under the the Constitution. And I. I think that that certainly violates the spirit, if not the letter of the Constitution, because there are limits to what a majority uh, can do under the Constitution and and where it can do it. Proponents of the resolution point to the Rules and Expulsions Clause, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2. that says that each house can determine the rules of its proceedings, and that's certainly true, and that gives them a lot of leeway, a lot of uh, discretion on what to do. But they can't then contradict or violate other explicit constitutional provisions with that with that power. And if in most, you know, this, they actually spoke to this, the Supreme Court spoke to this in the United States v. Ballen, which was the Supreme Court case arguing about the Reed's rule and, and uh, Speaker Reed in the late 19th century deciding to count present members who were refusing to vote to be as part of a quorum. And basically, the Constitution says, according to the court in this in this case, that the, the House can do whatever it wants with its rules, so long as it's not ignoring constitutional restraints or violating fundamental rights. And that's the the, the case here as I see it. Because if you read the, a lot of other provisions in the Constitution, it's Qualifications and Quorum Clause, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 1, it requires that a majority of its members are present so that the House can can conduct business. And, you know, present, well, what does that mean? I think there's a long history, uh, both in American history and parliamentary history and English law on what present means. But you, if you look at the meetings of Congress clause, the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year and such meetings shall be on the first Monday. If you look at the House Journal clause, it requires one fifth of the members present to order a recorded vote. If you look at the adjournment clause, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 4 says that neither house during the session of Congress shall without the consent of the other Adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two houses shall be sitting. Even if you suggest that maybe the house members are present who are voting by proxy or virtually, that certainly doesn't mitigate the fact that they are not meeting in the same place that the Senate that is physically present is meeting at that time. That that strikes me as a violation. And so, and then you have other provisions where house members are protected in traveling to and from sessions of Congress. Does that mean that, you know, traveling to and from your base? that you're protected i'm you know i'm not so sure so i think that the constitution does speak to this i think that the house members the framers of the constitution and the people who ratified it could, in fact, envision a scenario whereby members who were not present would cast votes via the mail, for instance. It's not a technological issue that was unknown to them. And that they thought that people getting together and doing their job and deliberating was something very, very important. And it would allow them to transcend their kind of narrow parochial views and and, and achieve what Madison calls justice and the general good.
0: Now, you referred to a couple of provisions that speak specifically in terms of place, right? There's the adjournment clause is that Article 1, Section 5, I guess, where, where one house can't adjourn for more than three days to another place without, without the other house's consent. Of course, that was in the news just a few weeks ago, where there was briefly discussion over whether President Trump could, could adjourn both houses for the sake of recess appointments. I have to say, in the conversation I had with, with Cooper and Alicea, one that really jumped out at me, and I had never thought of it in this context, was the Speech and Debates Clause. In Article 1, Section 6. Right? Where all members of Congress will be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in another place. So obviously, the going and, and going to and, and coming from, that is almost unavoidably talking about physical place with the other part of just the, the immunity from, from punishment elsewhere we don't give congressmen categorical immunity for everything they say with their their title attached, right? It's focused on the actual physically present business of of Congress. And so those are the two that really jumped out at me. But I've I've said too much already. Why don't we let Michael and and Kevin have a chance. What do uh, you two make of these constitutional issues? Uh, Michael?
5: I think that it's helpful to distinguish, I think, Adam, you made a mention of this between looking at this from a very technical point of view, as in who would win this case if it goes to court, which I'm sure is something you talked about with uh, Chuck and Joel. And on, on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of the broader, as James alluded to, the constitutional, the spirit of the Constitution, if not the letter. I think if you support remote voting or proxy voting, you tend to look at it as, as a technical question. You point to the fact there's going to be a lot of difficulties in getting a court to even look at the merits of this. And if they do, they are likely very, to be very deferential to Congress. On the other hand, if you are leery of the idea, you tend to stress provisions, as we have been discussing, that assume that physical presence. You would point to the unbroken practice from the very beginning up until now, that votes have always taken place physically in one location, and you would emphasize the slippery slope, which I think is an important point here, which is, if you say we're going to allow proxy voting during an emergency, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that's okay, but you can't allow it other times. Logically, it should be allowed constitutionally, it may be a bad idea, but logically, you you cross that bridge where where you've allowed it to be done at all. And certainly we've seen examples in the past where that that can happen. It seems to me that if there had been a greater willingness to deliberate on the constitutional issues here and a willingness to work across party lines, they might have been able to come up with a better solution that would have been a, a look for the least restrictive alternative That would minimize the constitutional doubts, because I'm not sure you're ever going to have a perfect answer, and doesn't undermine, doesn't open the door to undermining the institution the way I think that this proposal does. And so those I'm I'm skeptical of the idea that Congress can vote sort of across the country, everyone in their own homes. I'm not necessarily as skeptical of the idea that people can vote remotely in the sense of if, they're, if everyone, clearly everyone doesn't have to be in the same room at the same time. That's never been done. But I think there's a constitutional reason why the voting machine has to be in, the, in a single room. But I do think the issue of Congress assembling so that there's at least a majority present at the seat of government or whatever the place is where they're assembling does have a strong constitutional foundation. And I'm weary of getting rid of that. If I understood
0: the, my last conversation correctly, there wouldn't necessarily be a majority of the members of Congress in the building. Am I, am I wrong about that? I don't know if anybody here knows. I think given the, the proxy mechanics, you could have sort of a minority of the, of the house yes. present. But, but by the way, the, a key point I think is there have to be some members present, right? This isn't 100% remote voting. There are going to be members of Congress in the room, least a few with prox- with holding the proxies. They'll do the business, but it's not totally sort of disembodied from the
3: place. This isn't sort of a giant four hundred and thirty-five member Zoom call, right? That's the I think that's the distinction here that makes this resolution so problematic in, in my in my mind, because it explicitly allows it explicitly states that a majority of members under the quorum clause and under the House rules constitutes a quorum, even if they're not present. So it allows a plurality present, plus a majority not present to be counted. And what's interesting is this isn't like voice voting. And I agree, the House does lots of things. The Senate does it as well when there's not a majority or even more than a handful of members present at any time when they pass things by voice vote, by unanimous consent. We all know this, but that's a little bit of an ambiguity. What this resolution authorizes that for a plurality of members to stand up, it creates the possibility where a plurality of members stand up on the floor and say, I'm here and all these other people aren't here, we are going to record their votes and it's going in the record and the House is saying officially, we agree that a majority of members is not here and we're still conducting business. And that is something that has never happened before and I think it's problematic under the Constitution. Evan, would you like to jump in? What are your thoughts on this so far?
4: Yeah, I think certainly we are seeing things in the Constitution at tension with practical realities. I mean, James' suggestion about like, if you're heading to your basement, are you allowed as a member of Congress to be bothered or detained in the process? You know, you could imagine something peculiar like that. A member of Congress is at the grocery store and then suddenly there's a call for a vote and has to speed down the road at 90 miles an hour to get back and do a remote voting from the basement. It pulls over by a cop, but then claims congressional immunity. Obviously, this is not something that that the founders ever would have even conceived of happening. But this kind of leads me to the point that I tend to think of things in, which is that when I'm looking at these various constitutional provisions about place and quorum, they were put there... For purposes purposes that often grew out of the kind of English constitutional history that came behind them stuff that's emphasized in Josh Chaitz's recent book you know the business about not molesting members of Congress or detaining them while they're on headed towards a vote. well that happened to members of parliament. People at the behest of the king or just angry mobs would go after members of parliament. Obviously if you detain somebody they miss the vote it affects the outcome. That was the purpose. You know, with the quorum, you know, I see a quorum, the main purpose of a quorum is to be sure that you don't have like three leaders of a chamber show up and decide, hey, we're gonna pass some massive bill while completely disenfranchising a minority. That's really the purpose of a quorum. It's not a real bean counting exercise. I guess I'd also say that you just kind of alluded to, which is that congressional practice, especially House practice, has often been at odds with these very provisions. The business of leaders of Congress being able to show up and say, well, we have unanimous consent. And you've got five people in the chamber, and everybody else is out of town. And you pass a huge bill, spending millions, billions, even trillions of dollars. That's been done so many times. And the Senate recognizes it as fine, the president recognizes it fine, and it gets signed. Where's the deliberation? Well, that's a bigger problem. I mean, I know we want Congress to be a deliberative body, but the UC thing points to kind of the bigger picture about a thing about Congress that is just not the same as it used to be. You don't have lots of members in a chamber debating each other. It's very rare to even have a serious debate on the floor of the House. Most of what's done is done behind closed doors, frequently by leadership. So, the whole kind of idea of Congress as this convening of deliberation and difference, et cetera, et cetera, we've been far away from that for a long time. And that's lamentable, but that's been the practical reality and the practice of the place. And so, that's why I find kind of the, the lawsuit and the emphasis of like, you're violating the strict language of the Constitution, like, well, yeah, maybe they are, but gosh, it's been happening a while.
0: James Michael, let's let's focus on that point at first, at least about what Kevin said about so much is done by unanimous consent, so much of the House process that we've had for a long time now seems in tension with some of the the, the ideals of the Constitution seems to presume. Is this new resolution such a stark departure from the, the smaller departures we might have had in the past?
3: Yeah, I mean I think so, simply because, look, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 gives the House the power over how it conducts its business. And as pursuant to that, it assumes that there is a quorum present. It can decide how they want to go about counting that quorum. They can say only members who are present in voting can be included in that quorum. Or they can say all members present, which is what Speaker Reed did in the, 18th, in the late 19th century. All members present, regardless of whether or not they vote, are going to be counted as part of that quorum. That's exercising discretion under that provision of the Constitution. What's interesting about this provision is that it says that a yay-nay vote in which a majority is not present counts as a quorum. And the Constitution is very clear. It says you need a majority of members present to have a quorum, to do business. A yay-nay vote, the provision there says that one-fifth of the members present can request a yay-nay vote. Well, if the one fifth of the members present and the members present are only a plurality, well, then you don't have a quorum present and then you can't do business. And then if you then enter into the record, into the journal, the votes of the members when you haven't had a majority quorum present, when you put all these things together, that is an explicit violation in a way that doing a voice vote. And I agree with Kevin. I'm, I find it uncomfortable. I think it violates the spirit of the Constitution when you pass things by UC but I think the simple fact of the matter is, if you look very technically at the question, that one of those is allowed and it's, you know, it may violate the spirit, but it's certainly not contradicting the, the letter of the law. But the other one, I think, explicitly contradicts the Constitution. And I think if we want to recover the spirit of the Constitution, the first place to start is by honoring the letter. Michael? Kevin?
5: Yeah. So, I I mean, I basically, I, mean, I tend to agree with what James said, it seems to me that the if if UC is defensible, it is which is something that you know hasn't gotten a lot of academic discussion ever. But the, I think the theory is that basically, since no, it's essentially a waiver type of thing. You know, in other words, the purpose of a quorum is to protect members. If no one is objecting, then there's nothing really to protect, and therefore they waive their their you know any objection. The additional step that I think this may take is if this is permissible, that members basically say, I can be counted, I agree to be counted, even though I'm not there, what is to stop members from doing that at the beginning of the Congress? Right? And say, I just give a general consent that I shall- I can be counted as being present at all times. And then you've essentially eliminated the quorum requirement, unless, of course, members can still object to it, which I think is still... Be determined, but the theory is that uh, the theory of this rule is that even though, minor- even though a minority member might be a majority of the people who are in the room, they can't object to the absence of a quorum because these people who are not present have agreed to be counted, and that does seem to me to be different than just unanimous know, consent.
3: I would also point out that in the Federal Convention met in Philadelphia in 1787, the delegates explicitly rejected a proposal to allow members of the Congress to adjust the size of a quorum. We can all disagree or argue about whether or not it makes sense that a majority has to be present. But the simple fact is that the quorum requirement was placed in the Constitution to restrict members of Congress and, and allowing them to decide what constitutes a quorum. And they said, you can't adjust the number that that constitutes a quorum. And so I think that's an, an additional suggestion that, that we ought to take this requirement seriously. And if we want to change it, then there's lots of different ways to go about changing it, or two, I should say, under the Constitution, and we can have that discussion. Or we can figure out additional uh, protocols to go about how to change it. But to pretend like it doesn't exist, I think, is problematic.
4: Yeah, I guess this gets back to my idea of like, well, what is the purpose of a quorum? And if we can you know, do things by UC, then, I mean, proxy feels at least as robust. And so, I mean, it's not as if, say, Pelosi is just bringing the House in and suddenly saying, okay, yeah, 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 we got a quorum, we got a quorum here, trust me, and things are happening. I mean, it's a fairly robust process. There's a whole paper trail, you know, and interestingly enough, when you look at, you know, just today, Trump signed the first law that got passed through the proxy process. All the Republicans voted as part of that. So despite the fact that they're suing and saying it was illegitimate, they participated in the process. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 400 and some odd people on record saying yay or nay. So, you know, it feels to me like that spiritually at least hits the idea of what a quorum is supposed to do, which is to, again, ensure that a small minority of the body doesn't get together and suddenly stick something through.
3: I think, though, on the House bill that passed via this uh, under this new resolution, only 70 members were absent. So, I, you know, I don't think that the resolution in and of itself is problematic. I think the problem arises when a majority isn't present and under the resolution, the House still conducts business. And that hasn't yet happened. So, you know, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there are lots of different reforms. There are lots of different reasons why the House ought to operate in different ways and why they ought to change how they currently operate. But I, you know, I just think that they ought to do that under the in pursuant to the Constitution.
4: And, and one one of my friends who's pretty sharp on House procedure pointed out to me that the recognition of a quorum is up to the chair, and you know, uh, since eighteen ninety and Thomas Reed being able to say like, I'm the chair, and I say they're, they're present, they're present, <laughs> and that, that that strikes me as well, one of those practices that certainly has invited. Yeah. Well, so for long them,
3: as they are actually for present. forums. Yeah. <laughs> no, no no, no, chair has ever claimed the authority to count someone in Topeka as being present in the House floor. They always had to be present. The question is, under Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, did the House exercise its discretion to say present meant present voting or just present being present? And I think that's the key distinction.
0: Now, I want to get back in a minute to... The lessons of history here, but let me just raise one distinction and see if it makes a difference for the way you three are thinking about this. I think this debate over the this, this particular resolution and the broader debate about Congress, it's, it's intertwining two themes that are related, but they're separate. One is proxy, right? One is the proxy, namely, the House doing its business, even though certain members are not directly engaged in the business right you could give you could be a member of congress and give somebody your proxy and still be in the room right you could i mean maybe i don't know about the specifics of this resolution but they could do another resolution where members sitting there in the room could all give their proxies to other members right so they could be physically present but still have sort of exempted themselves from the act of voting on the other hand you could have remote participation without proxy, right? They could have a process by which some members are there in the room and the rest are not physically present, but they are all dialed in on a giant Zoom conference on a giant screen and they're all paying attention and they all end up directly participating, albeit over a wire. Now, the distinction cuts both ways, right? I said earlier, I think one of the things to be said for this rule is at least it does keep some people in the room, though the action is still happening in the house. It's not that everybody is totally remote. But the the, the problem, of course, is the proxy, right? The fact that people have sort of removed themselves from active participation in the actual business. So let me just raise that distinction and ask What's the real problem here? Is the problem that they are not physically present, or is the problem that they've given a proxy to somebody regardless of their physical presence? Or do you, do you reject my false choice between these two problems? Maybe they're both problems.
5: I would say that there are two issues here, at least two constitutional issues. This is the way the Senate Permanent Select Committee on Investigations looked at it anyway when they analyzed it. One is, is there a quorum? Is, is there, have we satisfied the number of members needed to do business? And the second is, where does Congress sit, right? Or where is it allowed to sit? It seems to me that remote voting and proxy voting are the same for the second question in terms of where Congress sits. For the question of the quorum, though, I think proxy voting is worse because it's not a quorum, and I think there's a little different than the distinction you were drawing, Adam, but the they're really allowing the proxy vote to be used for two separate purposes. One is be used to vote yay or nay on whatever the measure is, and the second is allowing the member to be counted as part of the quorum. I mean, you can separate those, and for purposes of counting them as a quorum, that is. I mean, if you have if you have people on a Zoom call and everyone is voting, you can at least see they are in fact participating. They're there, and it's harder, I think, to argue that you don't have a majority doing business than when. Really, the, the agreement is simply what the proxy says is simply, I agree to allow them to count. Me. And I think that that is analytically distinct and makes proxy voting more or less defensible for purposes of the forum clause issue. And as you point out, there's also a distinction between that and the question of giving your proxy to the vote, which I think could be yet another, could be a third issue depending on how much discretion is given. So if, if the member is simply saying, the member is saying, I, want to, I know what the measure is, and I'm telling you to vote yes or no on it, and the proxy holder has no discretion at all, including the discretion not to vote, which is another issue, but you can argue, well, the proxy holder is really just like a voting machine there, right, and that doesn't really add an additional issue. But if there's any discretion whatsoever in the proxy holder, including what happens the proxy holder just misses the vote by accident or chooses, I'm not going to vote, that does raise a different agency type issue that I think makes it more problematic.
4: Yeah, the proxy process very quickly got the ire up of Republicans because when it was used by committees in the Democratic near permanent majority of decades of yore, it was Fairly frequent that you would have powerful chairmen in committees who would basically demand other people's votes and to be allowed to cast them on certain things. And you, know, they, you either did it or you faced punishment from a chairman. I mean, that was a day when chairmen were so powerful that they were sometimes called miniature despots and, and the like. So there's that history that kind of came with the proxy system and the idea that you know, to some degree that there is a feeling of transactionality about it that is a little bit icky I mean, the vote is something you're handing off to somebody else to cast as opposed to you casting it. And that that made this a lot more difficult for Republicans to swallow.
3: Yeah. And I think just you can set aside the constitutional concerns and ask whether or not proxy voting or or remote voting or voting in, in absence or not around one another is a good idea. I think that's also a very good debate to have. I typically come down... On the side of getting people in a room is a good thing. You know, Ted Kennedy wrote a memoir. Member memoirs are typically pretty awful. I read Ted Kennedy's for some reason. It was not great, but it was called True Compass. And in it, he, he describes the Senate in this case, not the House. He says it's a chemical body. He says something happens when you get everybody in a room and you realize they're not going home until you get something done. I think this applies to the federal convention itself. I don't think we would have had a constitution in 1787 if the delegates decided to, to conduct their business via the mail, I don't think you get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 if you don't have people in a room arguing with each other until you get a decision. Imagine even setting aside kind of legislative assemblies, imagine Dr. King walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge with an iPad with, with 300 people connected via Zoom. That looks a lot different. It looks a lot different than what actually happened. I don't think that leads to the the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Politics is about people showing up and participating in an activity. And I think that that's something that is harder to do when you do it remotely. You can record podcast remotely, you can do lots of different things remotely. But I think that the act of a representative assembly is one of those things that you can't do remotely. Maybe you can conduct some of its business in terms of committees in different ways, but the actual formal place where people go to adjudicate decisions at the end of the day, where they resolve all their controversies, whether or not the committees acted one way or another on the House and Senate floors, I think people need to show up to do that.
0: This really is, for me, I think the, the best argument in favor of the lawsuit. It's not strictly legal or legalistic, but I think it does help to inform interpretation of the terms, right? We In, in the last conversation, and in the lawsuit itself, it draws distinctions between, say, the text of Article 1 and the text of Article 3. Article 3 with the judiciary uses really none of the same place-based terms that Article 1 arguably does. And yeah, the court does do its work together most of the time, although they're not doing it together right now, right? They're doing it remotely. But if the work of a judge is primarily just applying legal theory to, to the case at hand, and that's a much different, that's an entirely different podcast argument, but you know, you can make an argument about the work of the court really can be done in separate quarters and, and they come together through their writing. Of course, the executive branch, at least in, in the presidency, the unitary executive, is one person. He's the action he takes as president, whether it's as I think I said yesterday or in the in the first segment, he takes in the Oval Office or on Air Force One or overseas, it's it's still the president. He's still the president. But Congress, Congress the collective is- body, right, is as James said, we want them. To legislate in a process that promotes deliberation, often compromise, moderation.
3: Right. And the executive branch is about the application of expertise, at least in theory. The judiciary is about the evocation of of a higher authority, again, at least in theory. The legislative branch is about the application of bargaining and negotiation and persuasion. And I would also add that Congress has authority over how the executive branch conducts its business. And Congress has the authority over how the Supreme Court conducts its business. And Congress has, to a large degree, authority over how it conducts its own business. And one of the exceptions to that, I think, are the different clauses that we've mentioned in Article 1 that don't show up in the other articles.
0: Now, let me, let me just raise one other question about the, uh, the text and, and being informed by history. So many of the terms we've talked about, meeting, quorum, and so on. And in the, in the, the complaint, the, the lawsuit, they use these terms, and then they, they cite and quote Webster's Dictionary. Johnson's dictionary, other contemporary sort of sources of of definitions that are always they always elaborate these the meaning of these terms, you know, in terms of place and physical presence. But I'm not sure what I think about that because, of course, the terms in the Constitution could be construed as as being premised upon physical presence. That was really the only option they had, other than doing Congress by by I suppose letter, right? But it makes sense that when it says quorum or, or 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 presence or meeting or assembled, right? Of course, they envisioned at the time, it was all premised upon the idea of doing it in a place. But today, when we say, let's have a meeting and talk about this, we can have a meeting on Zoom like we're having right now, right? The technology has fundamentally changed. I look at, at Article 1, Section 5, where it says, each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings. Surely, at the founding era, they were thinking about it in terms of physical writing. If today, Congress decided to go strictly electronic with its journal and where it says to publish. Instead of publishing on paper, which the, 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 the founders presumed would be the case, it was published and archived strictly online. I, I don't know that that would be unconstitutional. That, that clause presumes a physical book and physical publication, but it's not clear to me that it requires it as the technology changes. And so that's my biggest doubt about the lawsuit, is I look at these other terms, which surely in their time were presumed to involve a physical place, but our communications today don't necessarily require that. It might degrade the conversation. to be a shame if Congress became a giant Twitter feed. But as a matter of law, I think there is a distinction between what the text presumed and, and, and what the text actually requires. Or am I just totally off base there?
4: No, I think, I mean, that's... As much of a strict constructionist as I am, you know, technology just creates possibilities that one would have never imagined. I mean, these days that the president can sign a law without being physically present with the law, to do it by this electronic pen from a distance, like, is he really signing that law? I mean, he, you holding an implement, not really, but nobody's ever said that these are not actual laws because this electronic pen is being used. And then when you get into other areas of law, which you know far better than, than I, I mean, goodness, I mean, there's all sorts of technologies that allow people to peer inside, the authorities to peer, in, peer inside people's homes, you know, or to seize electronic files. You know, this was inconceivable by the founders, but it can be done. So is it constitutional, not constitutional? I mean, it's it's inevitably gonna invite a debate and I kind of would hope that these debates over whether something is constitutional or not would kind of go back to the whole purpose. I mean, if the plain language can't clarify the answer, then let's focus on the purpose. And I can say that when it comes to, my reading of history is that when it comes to quorums and requirements of people showing up and all that sort of stuff and not having the House and the Senate in two different places, It was really focused on basic things like show up and do your job, make sure it's a majority, and have some level of transparency in what you do. And those are kind of broad goals and the way they did them back then, you know, they had far fewer options here. I mean, now, yeah, we can get 435 people together online, you could see their faces, you could do digital technology to recognize their faces. And you know, they could argue for days on end until they pass out, and then they could ultimately take a vote. And it wouldn't be the Congress that we kind of learned about in school and have known all our lives, but would it be a Congress that is fundamentally not doing what it's supposed to do?
5: Mike James. So I think the distinction that you are pointing to is an is an important one. It makes it makes this a very difficult issue. There are a number, I think, of important values that underlie the idea of Congress assembling, but there's I think a legitimate question of can you take those values and read them into the constitutional text in a way that you know constitutional lawyers can say this is or even worse courts can say this is unconstitutional and we can strike this down. I'm very dubious of that and, and in fact I'm quite sure that the courts at least in response to this particular lawsuit are not going to strike down the uh, proxy vote, but Congress itself, each house itself has an obligation, I think, to look at these issues, which are of a constitutional dimension, even if they're not, even if it's not a strictly yes, no type of answer as to whether you can use this type of technology. And I think if they did that, the result, even if they got to the same place, would be a lot more legitimate and perhaps thoughtful than the way they've gone about it. And, and it also seems to me there are l- less restrictive alternatives than what they've used um, that could satisfy these legitimate safety concerns without getting into so many constitutional problems. So so my concern goes really to sort of the quality of constitutional deliberation that has taken place in, in taking this step and I think that The thought has been, we've got an emergency, we've got to do something quickly, it's just for this, just for this, you know, this ride and, you know, ticket for just one ride only. And things like that have a tendency to to not be that way. So
3: that's my main concern. Yeah, and I think I agree on the court. I mean, in 1892, the last time the court weighed in on this issue and decided to, Notably, it wasn't a section of the House taking issue with another section of the House. It was somebody who was importing some some products under the Tariff Act of 1890, being against someone who was charging them a higher duty than they thought was was warranted. And at issue was the law passed the Tariff Act of 1890. And so therefore, the court was trying to resolve a dispute between these two parties. I think it's a completely different issue when the court is being asked to resolve a dispute between uh, different House members. And I think in addition to that, it's unclear, I'm not sure I agree that the court has the authority to enjoin an officer of the house. The court doesn't, it doesn't strike me as the court has authority over over what the officers of the house do. Only the house has that authority. The court isn't the emperor of America. With regard to the location, I I take your point. I think that there are a lot of things that certainly technology changes. But I think that this is something that the technology hasn't changed. Like They could have conducted business differently in the 1780s, and they chose not to. In the 1793 yellow fever epidemic, this is something that decimated the population of Philadelphia. 25,000 people fled the city. Over 5,000 people died. It was approximately 10% of the population. Alexander Hamilton gets yellow fever. James Madison's wife, Dolly, her first husband, and her youngest child die of yellow fever. Congress is scheduled to come back to this city because the Constitution requires them to come back to that city the 4th of December. And so George Washington writes Madison, he says, hey, Jimmy, what do I do here? Can I convene Congress somewhere else? And Madison says, no, you don't have that authority. Only Congress has the authority over where they convene. They have to meet to exercise it, and then they can meet wherever they go to convene. And George Washington writes, Jefferson, he says, hey, Tommy, what do you think? And Jefferson says, Mr. Madison happened to come here yesterday. And after the receipt of your letter, I proposed the question to him. And he thinks there was particular caution intended and used in the diction of the Constitution to avoid giving the president any power over the place of meeting. We know that the location of the Capitol is an extremely sensitive issue during the early Republic, and I submit it would be an extremely sensitive issue today if it was still an open question. And the reason why is because you have to meet there. If you don't have to meet there, then the location of the Capitol doesn't matter. And they could have conducted their business via letter. George Washington says, hey, Jimmy, can I send a letter to all the different members of Congress and say, hey, can you meet here instead? And Madison says, no, that doesn't suffice. And I think that whether it's letter, or whether it's Zoom, I think the technology is the same, which is it requires people, it allows people to communicate via distance. And the framers thought that that wasn't allowed with regard to Congress and where Congress sat.
0: Well, I want to thank all three of you. You've given us, our audience, a lot to think about. Michael Stern, James Walner, Kevin Kosar. Thank you all for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential.
3: Thanks very much. Thanks for having us.